The crisis has created almost a magnetic field of, of pulling all these functions together such that we actually deliver a much coherent journey for our customers and consumers. Massimo Rapparini, he is the Chief Information Officer at Logitech. So brands in our portfolio may be familiar with our Jaybird, Blue Microphones, Astro Gaming, obviously Logitech, Logitech G, and uh, Blue Microphones. Um, I think, you know, just briefly the scope of what I do. Yes, as like you said, I lead the IT function at Logitech, uh, but I also head up customer experience, uh, which is basically running our contact centers around the globe, providing support to our customers and workplace services, uh, managing about 80 offices across the globe. Now, a quick thank you to Productive, a SaaS management platform that unlocks the power hidden in your SaaS applications to bring you higher ROI, better team collaboration, and lower license costs. And you are a walking, living, breathing representative of Logitech right now with, uh, <laughs> tell us the equipment that you've got. Yeah, well, as you can see, I'm using a blue microphone, blue Yeti. Uh, which I think you're familiar with as well, and using a Brio webcam uh, that is uh, immensely popular uh, of lately, of course. And then um, I have uh, in-ear phones, headphones from uh, Ultimate Ears Pro, um, and then obviously mice and keyboards that complete the whole setup here at home for me. Let's talk about the managing change, and we've all been, we all are experiencing this global crisis situation Tell us what the impact has been on Logitech. First of all, just to start, I think I want to express, obviously, our sympathy with a lot of people that have been impacted by the epidemic. And I think for a lot of people in way worse uh, situations than, for instance, I personally have been a lot of the employees at Logitech. So definitely feel for them. And uh, with everybody else, we're all hoping and uh, praying that pretty soon uh, this uh, pandemic will be over. But stepping back and looking at kind of what happened back in March, I think like everybody else, we responded. And when the uh, pandemic started spreading, immediately the impact was more uh, in Asia, obviously. And we have a large operation there that is where a lot of our production happens, a lot of our design engineering teams. And I think uh, our first reaction was trying to figure out how to maintain the ability to operate. Um, but then at some stage that shifted to how do we actually, as we resume the ability to manufacture products, how do we actually figure out how to distribute them? You know, borders were closing, uh, a lot of restrictions were being imposed in different regions. And so how do we look at different sales channels to still get products in often products that are really essential and critical to customers across the globe? Um, I think for us, there is definitely a silver lining in so many categories that we were already playing uh, we become even more relevant to the crisis. And you, you probably know, we've always been in the personal collaboration space. Uh, we've always promoted things like streaming, gaming, and uh, all of these areas have, have seen a, a huge increase, obviously, since the start of the pandemic, which, like I said, silver lining in, in, uh, in a good way for us. So you've yeah. got demand exploding for, for, for your products. At yep. the same time, you have to be closing your offices and therefore ramping up production while all of this is taking place. Yeah. So how did you do that? Like you said, looking back, it feels like a, you know, an Herculean effort. And especially, I think, uh, like I said, in Asia, kudos to our team members there who very quickly adapted to how to, in a safe way and in a secure way, still be able to maintain some of that operations and production. But initially, for sure, I know consumers noticed, and as I run customer support, you know, I've firsthand experienced people obviously being desperate to get their hands on products essential for them to be able to do their work. Uh, but I think we've been able to 
get over the hump there. And I think uh, especially after the summer, around the summer, uh, being able to ramp up and also really try to leverage different ways to create that kind of production capability. Um, I think the, the challenge with people being, you know, uh, in, in all different settings and working more remotely uh, was something a little easier for us to overcome since we've always been a very distributed company. You know, we, like I said, 80 offices in pretty much every region of the world. But also we've been adopting distributed collaboration, using video collaboration within our four walls already for years. And so I think that's also a obviously benefit that we had that we could quickly pivot to that. And really the trick for IT as an example was mostly about scaling, but not so much about how do I educate people about how do I use Zoom or how do I actually get into video calls. Um, so I think, you know, I think uh, different, different kind of ways to adapt, but, uh, but that's pretty much what happened. So for you, ways of working, working from home, working yep. with a globally distributed team, you were already, yeah. already doing that, but the challenge yeah. was scaling. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think as an example, you know, before the crisis, we already had a very high utilization of video collaboration. On average, we're doing 30,000 video calls a month with more than 80 sites connecting with about three to four attendees in every video call. Uh, if you translate that, if you do the math, it translates to at least one or two video calls for every employee of about 3,000, uh, 4,000 employees. And uh, I think since March, we've seen a almost a threefold increase in that. We're now looking at 75 to 90,000 video calls a month. Um, and the good news is since we were already pretty cloud-centric, we were really able to really leverage the, uh, the quick uh, scaling up and scaling um, of, of the infrastructure to be able to meet that type of demand. And um, it's, you know, at the same time, I think it's starting to create also a burden on IT in terms of being able to respond to this. But um, I think that's, you know, like I said, uh, a great example of how we've been able to leverage some of the things we already had in place. So tell us more about that role of IT and mm -hmm. some of the challenges that you faced in IT during the transition period. We had um, impact both internally in terms of like we talked about the infrastructure and scalability, security, how to enable people to already used to uh, working remotely to be doing this more securely, as well as externally, how do we partner with sales and marketing leaders so we can actually shift to different channels, a lot of uh, increase in our direct-to-consumer channels, and adding capacity for things that impact our partners, our operations, and as well as supporting our customers. Right? We've seen a huge increase in demand from customers asking us for support and finding ways to be more flexible and, uh, and provide, again, that uh, ability for people to also work remotely. Um, so those are, you know, obviously some of the things. I think um, the, the cloud infrastructure, like I mentioned earlier, was a big um, benefit to us, the fact that we were already pretty heavily in the cloud. Um, and also thinking about just ways to enable this safe remote connectivity in ways that you can also adapt to much more video traffic or different ways of collaborating with partners in different regions of the world. What was the hardest part? The biggest challenge is really rethinking uh, the impact of a adapting operation to uh, the technology platforms that you have, right? So you maybe have a, already a collaboration tool, maybe you have a sales enablement platform like salesforce.com or, um, you know, all these tools work well in one setting where you have a model, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk a little bit later about resilience, which is really optimized for efficiency, but now you need to shift to something that's maybe more flexible, that adapts to different uh, channels, that adapts to different partners. And so really tweaking and adjusting those platforms to a different business model, I think was probably the hardest for us. And how did you go about accomplishing that? 
things that potentially seemed unassailable in the past, right? That there was such a focus on razor thin cost optimization, there was such a focus on things that were really, how do we, again, make things more and more efficient? Um, I think all of a sudden you see a shift to how do I actually embrace technology across the whole value chain? And uh, how do I make it something that is pretty much leading the charge in terms of adapting to the crisis situation? Um, so I think, you know, uh, being able to figure out how technology brings people close together um, and finding ways that uh, we can innovate and, and build new products while at the same time making operations more scalable. I think those are all of the things that, you know, we've tried to embed, let's say, in the fact that there's this once in a lifetime almost opportunity to make change. And, uh, and that's something that you should grasp but, uh, as a CEO for sure. Again, I'm, I'm very interested in the difficulties getting into some of the, the details yep. of how you go about driving this kind of change, shifting from the focus on the historical focus on efficiency to yep. now, obviously, you need to remain efficient, but now yep. you need to do things differently. How do you, yep. how do you go about doing that? First of all, you know, there's a lot of opportunities to rethink um, how you've really structured processes and the systems that support them, right? And um, if you take an example, just on the manufacturing side, a lot of the efficiency-focused outcomes mean that you have, you know, just-in-time processes, you have systems that have very little room for redundancy. And so there's that risk around, you know, uh, reacting to shocks to those systems. Um, I think, you know, what, what you can do is really step back and, consider where is um, a uh, opportunity to build something different than optimization, but a redundancy to some extent. And what are the infrastructure gaps and the lack of fallback scenarios that you're trying to address in that example, as an example in manufacturing. So I think, you know, that that's the approach as, a, as an IT leader you can take, but obviously fully in partnership with business leaders uh, to really almost like redesign and re-architect the way you're not just doing systems or really the processes that they're supporting. How do you separate the technology dimensions from the non-technology dimensions, whether it's culture, talent, any, anything else outside of technology? I think you don't necessarily want to separate them. I think you're trying to kind of bring those together. And I think as a IT leader, you're trying to really make technology the accelerator and the enabler of some of these business changes that need to occur as well. And I think um, if you look at, for instance, uh, again, back to our value cha chain, the opportunity to now shift to multi-sourcing, dual suppliers, for instance, for manufacturing operations in different regions. You can, as an IT leader, you're trying to really uh, adapt to that and fully kind of um, align to the type of changes that business operations are doing and find how, for instance, even things like what talent and roles you want to staff in different regions to lower the risk of new business disruptions. Uh, what kind of technology um, evolutions you want to do and upgrades and features that you potentially have put on the back burner because of uh, focus on efficiency, right? So I think it's, you just really need to be opportunistic, right? And jump into those type of situations that are completely changing some of the rules of the game, so to speak. If you're rethinking the role of IT in this innovating and adapting value yeah. chain, what are the, the challenges in doing that? It's Because it kind of goes outside the traditional role of IT. Yeah. yeah. And I think it leads to IT almost being redefined as where technology and not you know, just IT, technology in general, becoming almost kind of the business itself, right? I think where it used to be traditionally, okay, we have 
business functions, and then there's IT, and they bring technology to try to support the business functions. Whether you're trying to innovate and build new products, whether you're just executing a, special, a specific operation, whether your business is hardware or digital and a full online service, all of these are more and more showing that technology is essential. It's kind of almost what runs those type of services and, and products, right? And so I think that's where you, as an IT team, then you can think about, okay, what can I do to uh, bring technology to bear in ways that are relevant and have a positive impact on the business? And it could be in regards to building new services. It could be in regards to uh, applying technology for more intelligent and automated operations. Uh, and it could be mining data to get, gain insights about things you couldn't gain before because you didn't have a direct relationship with consumers. So, yeah, I'm, um, yeah, I'm, I think you know across the board, um, I think there's no shortage of these type of opportunities. We have uh, an insightful, interesting question from Arsalan Khan. And Arsalan says, he says, the pandemic created an urgency for IT to perform in various areas all at once. Why does it take a reactive approach from the business to understand the importance of IT? And is this going to last? That's kind of what I think what he describes is pretty much the experience of traditional IT, right? Where you're maybe somewhat, I wouldn't want to maybe exaggerate, but second-class citizen, you're kind of like a back office function that, okay, yeah, it's a necessary evil, so to speak. And if things go wrong, everybody cries and otherwise we don't really notice it. But obviously, I think that's by now, hopefully for a lot of CEOs, something of the past. And I think um, that that observation about, you know, the business really noticing or somewhat appreciating some of the things that technology can do with them um, is something that as a CEO, you can anticipate. And for sure, the crisis, like I said, has accelerated, right? But you can create all the conditions and position IT such that if not just a crisis, but a huge business opportunity, maybe it's an M&A event or what have you, arises that you've set up your teams, you've set up your contribution to what the business does to be super impactful. And that's the type of thing, like I mentioned earlier, where we had embraced video collaboration and we were showcasing it internally, we we're showcasing to prospect as an IT to IT team. I think those are all the things that then pay off in, you know, in dividends uh, when the crisis happened, because that's something that we could usually leverage in that situation. So I, yeah, I, I guess that, that would be my advice is, you know, don't wait for the crisis. And yes, there's some frustration with how the business looks at it, but I think you can create the conditions such that you can be much more uh, critical and, and impactful beforehand. Let's talk about resiliency. You, you mentioned that a few times, but let's yeah. drill into that. So when you talk about resiliency, what does that mean? What does that refer yeah. to? You know, everybody's probably seen this as an outcome of the COVID-19 crisis, a larger appreciation for previously, whether it's, you know, uh, dependency on super efficient, lean, just-in-time processes, systems that have very little redundancy or can't react to shock to, to those systems. I think in supply chain, as an example, manufacturer, custom operations, I think a lot of businesses realize that over-reliance on specific locations, for instance, or uh, specific partners or cost-efficient sites where you can just get the best in time, lowest inventory level, super cheap way to actually get products to customers. All of that has obviously a huge drawback when you start uh, experiencing a shock like COVID-19. And so for me, business continuity and resiliency is about more than being ready to handle something like a natural disaster or a big cyber incident. It's truly about the full resilience of business operations and being able to flexibly reassemble processes, 
uh, people and tools and really show that ability to rapidly adapt to changing conditions. And that doesn't need to be just about a crisis like COVID-19. This definitely sounds like you are extending beyond the traditional boundaries of IT as we've known it historically. Yeah, grab the bull by the horn, so to speak, right? There, what, what better role you, IT can play in a situation like this than truly driving and leading the conversations and the opportunities from a business, which could be both from a risk mitigation as well as from a, a business opportunity, right? I think both of these angles are valid. And do you think about both of those angles, the, the traditional approach of risk mitigation, as well yeah. as the business opportunities created that IT can help create? Yeah, and I think for Logistic in particular, obviously, I mentioned at the beginning, the corona crisis is, is a disaster and obviously has a huge personal impact to millions of people around the world. Um, and, you know, we're happy that we can actually not only contribute and help uh, with some of the products that people actually require in this situation, but also the fact that, again, our business is relatively unscathed by what's going on with the, with the crisis. So I think, you know, there's a lot of focus on, you mentioned at the beginning, scaling to be able to build more products, meet some of the demand. And that's very easy to get kind of sucked into. But I think as an IT leader, you also need to be somewhat the guardian of let's manage risk. Uh, let's make sure as people change the way they work, we're looking at cyber risk. We're making sure there's secure ways to connect remotely. We're connecting with different partners, introducing new technology. So um, you want to obviously grasp the opportunity, but at the same time, keep an eye on the risk as well. Let's talk about the technology aspects of this because mm -hmm. the, the rapid transition relies, you, you said earlier that you are, have been a cloud-based organization. So tell us about the technology. You know, cloud in this case is for sure also something that has demonstrated the importance of having the ability to, you know, rapidly and flexibly adjust to things that are changing. So it could be burst capacity that you need all of a sudden, but the ability to also, you know, scale down if you don't need it as uh, business uh, conditions change. I think for us, things like the redundancy of cloud architecture is something that really emerged as, uh, as something critical because, yes, you can, for, for example, uh, have a ton of workloads all on you know, Google Cloud Platform or AWS, whichever you pick. Um, but if you don't have something like multi-cloud, the ability to shift to one vendor or another, you don't have geographical redundancy. If, if I had put all my workloads in Asia at the beginning of the pandemic, well, my business would have been at a standstill. Uh, but the ability to do things like rapid provisioning, agile architecture, uh, and easily transfer workloads to new environments, all of these pieces, I think, have been clearly shown as a to go forward, not just for crisis, but to go forward to build that ability to uh, be resilient. So that technology foundation is just a core part of the fabric, so to speak. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it becomes a, a much more relevant, salient part of what IT does uh, and becomes something different than purely, let's keep the lights on and make sure you know business can continue. But how can I actually respond to opportunities as well? Much, much faster, right? In a much more agile way. I know also that at Logitech, you use digital twins, yeah. which is, I find interesting because I tend to think of a digital twin as <laughs> being part of the design process for, I don't know, jet engines or, or very heavy, large <laughs> yeah. industrial equipment as opposed to cameras yeah. and microphones. Obviously, I think there's multiple ways to define or apply things to the concept of digital twin. I think for us, uh, one of the big, biggest use case applications being in the manufacturing uh, operation itself. And the fact that as we, for instance, uh, one, 
had operations that were impacted for our own factory in China at the beginning of the pandemic. And then two, had to be able to more flexibly engage and, and um, basically partner with different contract manufacturers. Uh, it really helps to have the ability to now start modeling, simulating large-scale operations, collect real-time data on processes, deviations from processes, looking at quality, uh, uncover weak links, single points of failure, and basically use that to your advantage to then decide where are you going to either invest capacity, how do you staff things differently, what systems do you need to implement, or what capacity you need to add in terms of network connectivity, all those different decisions that come at you at 100 miles an hour in a crisis like this, and a simulation digital twin type of capability allows you to deal with that too. How much do you use those kinds of simulation capabilities? I think for us, it's early days as in, you know, again, partly maybe luck, right? We had actually started building this before the pandemic and uh, able to invoke a lot of this as part of um, uh, we respond, our response specifically to manufacturing impacts. Uh, but I think we are starting to see more applications. And yes, when it comes to things like design or building and innovating new products, I think there's a huge opportunity there, as especially we need to adjust to not being able to all, you know, get engineers and designers in one room and work together on, you know, kind of tangible uh, uh, work and design artifacts, but having to simulate that all online. And so building design workflows and journeys and uh, design out outputs that are used by engineers, all those pieces become really something you need to do online and digitally. And, uh, and I think that's the area that I would say we would want to turn attention to next, but I, I, yeah, like I mentioned, I think it's early days for us. Arsalan Khan has um, another question. He's concerned about the commoditization of IT and these mm -hmm. kind of value-added, value-chain discussions that you were describing. Yep. So does that fight the commoditization of IT? 100%. And I think, uh, again, hopefully for... Many people, IT is commodity is hopefully something of the past. I think, um, you know, the opportunity where uh, businesses are more and more turning towards digital as not just a uh, platform for delivering products and services, but actually as the product itself, I think means IT. And, you know, I think obviously some of that has led to maybe more sexy terms like chief digital officer and you know, people that are an hybrid CTO, CIO. But at the end of the day, it's that opportunity where technology um, whether it's traditional IT or some of the things that are, you know, more emerging like digital, starts playing a huge role that is beyond the, does email work, is the Wi-Fi up and running, and, you know, can people actually uh, use the network? I think it's it's that transition, and for sure, something like a, a crisis like COVID-19 can be seen and hopefully used as an opportunity to change the perception as well. Many companies have found that the pandemic forced transformations, and you alluded to this earlier, forced transformations that were slowly in play anyways. Did you yeah. find that that happened to a large extent at Logitech? And, and if so, how? I think if people are familiar with Logitech, you probably have noticed most of the time people would run into our products, even if it's the traditional mice and keyboards, uh, headsets and, and webcams uh, at places like Best Buy in the US or Media Mart in Europe. And you know th those kind of large uh, retailers, uh, physical, you know, brick and mortar shops. And that I think was a big, traditionally a big reliance for us in terms of how we bring products to customers, which then also got augmented with things like Amazon and eBay and all these other large online platforms or JD.com in Asia, right? Then I think what, what happened with the, 
pandemic is obviously partly because of the demand for our products, but also partly because of consumer behavior that changed. There was a much bigger appetite and interest in our own direct-to-consumer platforms. And on Logitech.com, and, you know, you can go there and buy products and you could do that always. But uh, again, because of the demand in all these other channels, we've never uh, invested as much or really focused as much as that uh, as a potential opportunity for growth. So I think that's really what's happened. And I think, again, that has obviously led to a huge appreciation, realization that we can do more with this and not just try to respond to that demand. But rethink what is the purpose and the value of an e-commerce channel. Uh, how can you design it? How can you set it up such that it's the best value for our customers, consumers to go there? And it's also something that is providing a whole different uh, output for the companies like us that in, instead of going through traditional retail channels. As you're looking at these different technology aspects and different business processes, how do you ensure that what you want to do fully aligns with the business owners in those <laughs> processes or technologies or customer interfaces, yeah. whatever it is. This type of event, you know, creates a much stronger uh, attraction, so to speak, between all the different touch points of a customer journey, right? And previously, where you maybe had silos and functions that were able to be pretty self-contained and isolated, and maybe from a customer, your experience also came across as quite fragmented. Now I think the, something like the crisis has created almost a, you know, some sort of a magnetic field of, of pulling all these functions together such that we actually deliver a much coherent journey for our customers and consumers. Um, and so I think you know, that, that's really what, what I see is something that doesn't necessarily mean IT needs to kind of pitch for, hey, here's a point of view, here's what we should be doing, or think about how we design the e-commerce platform this way but you're really being pulled, there's a huge pull for being able to apply technology to develop chat channels or allow for people to have a way to uh, purchase additional warranty on their products or being able to have a connection between sales and support. You know, all, all these pieces are becoming, like I said, a, a demand that you don't necessarily need to offer yourself or, or offer opinions on yourself. Well, it's very interesting for me to hear you talk about the customer experience and mm. customer journey because that's something usually the CMO talks about as opposed to the chief information officer. So where's the link there? I have a great relationship with Heidi, our CMO, uh, because I think we do have a lot of overlaps. And I, I think we've found a good way to uh, complement each other in the sense that she's obviously very focused on what is that brand experience we want to provide, what's at the end of the day, the way that we can facilitate uh, the marketing of our products to all these different and more digital channels. And I think uh, I selfishly, as I also run operations, I'm also looking at the kind of back end of all that, which is, okay, what happens when somebody actually has made a, a purchasing decision? And how do we ensure that, that those two pieces really seamlessly integrate? Um, so like I said, I think if you, you know, if you have, I think, the right conditions in place, I think you'll see that emerges as a great opportunity to actually make IT much more valuable to the likes of a CMO. Uh, and then you, there's plenty of opportunity for both sides to really impact something positive for the company. Would it be accurate to say that the CMO is responsible for the brand and you mm -hmm. as CIO are responsible for the technology and processes to enable putting that brand forth in the right way? Is that, is that a way to describe it that's accurate? 
Yeah, I think that's one way, and I, I'm pretty sure you know companies have probably different models and different way of looking at it. I think there's a, an element of technology savviness that is obviously individual to each company and each of the people in these different roles. And if you take Heidi Arkansas, in our case, our CMO, you know, she's very technology savvy and she's been a big evangelist for there's tons of ways that we can implement better platforms for our consumers, um, really use the data and leverage the data to the benefit of consumers in different ways. And so I think from that point of view, I have a somewhat easy job where I can really actually rely a lot on her to help drive some of these uh, implementations and these initiatives. And uh, and at the same time, try to complement that with, well, what is the piece that is beyond the brand, let's say, uh, execution, but is also the consumer journey post sales as an example. And I think that's where we have a you know a good fit. I've always found it very interesting with with you that customer care reports mm-hmm. into you as well, mm-hmm. and that's that's unusual for that uh, for the CIO also in general. Mm-hmm. I think I've run maybe in a couple of other people that have similarly uh, this as part of their portfolio and CIOs that, for instance, own services. I think is not that unique, uh, and services could include you know. In, in different industries, something like consulting or implementation service or training, and then maybe a support piece as well. And so, so I think more and more we'll see that. And my own explanation, I think, is as technology can become so much more prominent as a way to execute something like customer support and deliver on a brand promise and deliver on an expectation of a customer that's purchased the product, then there's nobody else, I think, better place to actually help customers have a, a great experience. And obviously there's still a lot of other things that are not technology, but I think where uh, Gen Z, you know, some of the millennials, newer generations are looking for engagement with brands. A lot of it does involve things they could do on an app, on a mobile device or on texting and, and things like that, right? So I think that's that's where also the future will go. And so maybe in a couple of years, Michael, you'll be interviewing a dozen CIOs that are taking on support. If you're not focused on more strategic aspects and innovation aspects of running the business, well, that is the prescription for the commoditization of IT. I agree. Yeah, I think I think so. And so again, obviously, there's things sometimes beyond your control, but there's also self-inflicted wounds. And uh, and I think uh, you know, being passive and somewhat expecting people to commoditize you for sure will happen. Another question from Twitter: Would you prefer a CEO who is IT aware? Or a CIO who is business aware. If choosing both was not an option. I think I would probably go for the latter, right? So the CIO that's business aware, I think, is a a larger opportunity to influence and impact and drive conversations that maybe, you know, peers at the C-level or the CEO, him or herself, may not be thinking of. Um, I think it's a little harder if, you know, let's say the CEO is IT-aware but then encounters a maybe traditional IT shop that is very much about, okay, we have rules and we're just about devices and we're just about network and we're about, you know, kind of uh, tools and technology for the sake of it. Um, it's a lot harder to kind of try to make that change and drive that change. So, And I think my observation is most CEOs these days obviously are technology aware. Um, and at the same time, I think CEOs are evolving more and more into realizing the value they can provide to the business. But yeah, nice question and hard dilemma for sure. There are certainly degrees of this. For example, in in Logitech, you obviously have an environment that encourages, that enables you yeah. to take this more expansive role. And and not every company is like that. 
totally. Yeah, I, I think the culture matters. Uh, I think also the other element is your own um, initiative in terms of uh, claiming or pitching that you can have a diff different impact on the business than maybe traditional IT. And I think I think the third piece is also the, the business you're in, right? So like you said, obviously at uh, Logistic, we're in the business of actual consumer electronics and technology itself. So finding somebody who's not kind of tech savvy at Logistic is really hard. And, uh, and I think that enables, again, a different condition for the CEO to play a different role. So this cultural element then actually is really, really important. I think it matters both from uh, what is the company um, projecting outside of their own four walls for the customers, the consumers that they serve, as well as within the company and the employees that you're able to attract and the role that each of the different functions can play. Um, and so for us, you know, Logitech, we, we're very, um, obviously, like I said, tech savvy, but we're also very aware of what's going on around us. And we, at the end of the day, are also trying to make a positive impact on people's lives directly. And so we want to understand what drives our customers, our consumers, and what are some of the even social issues that are happening these days, like uh, a drive for equality or sustainability uh, and environmental impact. So, yeah, I think all of those are eventually what shows up when you, uh, when you get to consumers as well. And we have another question from Twitter. E-commerce and customer experience don't guarantee business resilience. So... What mm -hmm. is, so is business resilience a matter of how you use technology? Is it a matter of the technology itself that you choose to buy? What creates the business resilience? Well, like I say, I think business resilience for sure is not just about let me implement a bunch of technologies and then we'll be resilient. Right? I think you need to make that assessment of those operations, those processes, and the pieces that are maybe um, those weak links or you know, single points of failure. And I think that's where you then leverage technology to understand, can it create more redundancy? Can it create better distribution? Can it create the ability to scale faster, more agility? Um, so it's, <clears throat> taking e-commerce as an example, you know, really our play has been that um, we bring products to customers in, in all possible different ways that make sense for them to receive, right? And what we don't want to do is, okay, everything goes through, let's say Amazon or goes through JD.com. You know, all of a sudden they have challenges and now all of a sudden our products never get to consumers. Right? So I think we do see something like e-commerce as it's an opportunity from a go-to-market in a different channel. And it's an opportunity to, to build a technology such that you can make it either an attractive channel for people or something that is as competitive as Amazon, or is maybe because it can personalize stuff on e-commerce and that you only get special products from Logitech if you go to Logitech.com as something that is a different way to attract different consumers. So I think the resilience definitely starts with the bigger picture of your business and your goals. And then, you know, we see technology and maybe the other example is when it comes to um, video collaboration. You know, we, we've adopted video collaboration way before the crisis and not as a standalone, well, you know, maybe that's a good way to build resilience because we have teams in different parts of the world. But it, because it, you know, really emerged as a much more uh, scalable, much more uh, appreciated and adopted way for people to actually work across boundaries and in different regions. And so I think as you see that business opportunity and what what is your ability to innovate, to be able to bring new products, and then you see the technology piece like video collaboration can bring to it, then uh, that's where you want to marry them and at the same time get the benefits of, for instance, having some resilience built in. So you could say that uh, business resilience 
is about understanding the business strategy and the value chain, but then you bake technology into the processes and the operations as you go. Let's say differences maybe from how people looked at technology in the past is instead of technology as a way to just optimize and super efficiently build everything to be super automated with very little room for failure, you're actually adopting technology to create flexibility, to create agility, you know, to create that kind of resilience. And so for sure, you need to change that, that perception, that mindset too, right? And, and, and drive a different role for technology to play. Could you summarize specific advice for building business resiliency? You know, start with the, the business and uh, understand what is the strategy from uh, ability to scale and ability to grow that you're aspiring for and what does it translate to when it comes to things like geographies, markets, industry that you want to play in. I think as an IT leader, partner with all the owners of these type of aspects of the business to decide, okay, it sounds like, you know, when it comes to go to market or when it comes to innovating and building new products, we have a very important need to be able to do that fast, quickly, or be able to grow, you know, twice the size next year, understand that kind of strategy, right? And then work backwards from there to understand the technology you have in place today. Is it developed to optimize for that or is it developed uh, to be able to, you know, kind of uh, expand to different scenarios that could happen that you haven't forecast? Right? You have the, the kind of happy path of the business, the happy path of the strategy you're pursuing. And then what are all these deviations that could happen? And then how does technology respond to that? So that's maybe a kind of a way of summarizing. And, and obviously, it's a little high level I think if you take an example of some of the things I described earlier on our manufacturing in Asia, I think you quickly see how that can cascade into, okay, I'm going to build more cloud operations, multi-cloud architecture. I'm going to increase the capacity to connect to partners in regions I didn't connect to before. And so very quickly, I think it translates to practical things you can implement as an IT team. And somewhere along the way, you were in close contact and collaboration with the business leaders from the various domains or regions and so forth to make sure that you're working in concert with what's needed at that detailed level. Yeah, you want to be an equal partner. I mean, at the end of the day, each each of us plays a role in terms of putting the puzzle together. And um, if you're just doing it, uh, you know, standalone in in a silo, obviously, will have a negative effect. As we finish up, how do you plan for what's coming next, given the fact mm-hmm. that there are so many variables and we don't know? I think it's the, the key word there, we don't know, and the variables. Um, there's a ton of studies, I think recently one from McKinsey, that for instance, just talking about the, the change of how people work, that some of those will be permanent changes and it becomes, I think, more of a work from anywhere and flexible hybrid working model versus uh, we're all going to shift to working remotely and stay for like that forever, just like we're today, right? I think, I think a realization that the transformation of the models and the, and the complexity and, and different types of models uh, that will occur. So I, th- I think you can, yeah, you can't really predict, right? You can't uh, even say when is Corona going to be over or what will the world look like after it? But I think you can anticipate there's going to be new things introduced that have emerged as part of Corona, that acceleration has happened, that you can prepare and plan for. And as a CAO, you have a huge opportunity to lead with technology. Uh, So whether you're focusing on resilience, uh, agility, uh, or the ability to bring completely new services and new products to market that have been somewhat um, born out of the need of people operating a different way uh, because of the Corona crisis. So 
Um, yeah, I think we're all trying to look in our crystal ball and anticipate, but starting to accept that there's going to be different scenarios, much more flexibility, and have IT be able to pivot faster, I think is definitely a, a safe bet. How do you work with peers as an equal partner? How much of it is a simple conversation and how much of it is some sort of structured planning process? You know, when I joined Logistic about four years ago, I guess I would describe it as, as, as you're uh, hired as a CIO, you're giving the license to be the person who's going to drive the technology roadmap at Logitech. Um, now, the question is, what do you do with that license? And I think if you want to be of value to everybody else in the company, whether it's your peers or your teams or other people's teams, I think you need proactively take the initiative to yeah, reach out and engage and find out what are some of the things that you know, make them tick or are, are keeping them up at night. I think that's a role you can play that then makes you the owner of the destiny of what your role can be. <clears throat> and I think that's partly what led to me at some stage being asked to also run customer support and customer experience and facilities and real estate. And I think not because I'm such a smart guy, but I think because I think I've been able to engage with the right people and have them feel, I think, excited just like I am about and passionate about customer support to feel like we could do something together and drive an outcome together with the right combination of the team members that we have. So, um, so I'm fancy the question. For sure, some of this translates to structured conversation, but no, uh, make no mistake. I think some of the things we for sure experienced with uh, this you know, working remotely is the lack of these kind of spontaneous, serendipitous conversation right? that happen if you are in a hallway and run into somebody casually and that's uh, for sure, I think, the, still the biggest nut to crack is figuring out how do you replicate those in a, in a virtual environment. We just uh, last week interviewed the chief operating officer of Dropbox, and yep. she raised exactly the same issue, is that there's no easy way to have those kind of serendipitous conversations. And, and again, no surprise there. I think, again, we've talked a lot about video collaboration. I think... Uh, I'm a big fan personally, but I think obviously because of you know Logitech being a key leader in the business, I think um, the the challenge that still remains is how do you replicate things from real life completely? And and I think you probably don't want to do that. I think you want to highlight things that are actually completely different and maybe more value in a in a different setting like a video collaboration. Um, but I think at the end of the day, you know, even the things we're doing now, video calls and you know, behind Zoom or Teams or whatever your favorite uh, cloud platform is, is it's a whole different impact on you personally. And I see it with some of our employees as well. Like I said, you know, stepping back in the grand scheme of things, that's probably a easier thing to overcome than a lot of people who personally being impacted by the crisis who either lost their jobs or, or can't actually work remotely. Okay, well, we are unfortunately out of time. It's a very quick conversation. Massimo Rapparini, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks. Great to be here. Thanks, Michael. We've been speaking with Massimo Rapparini. He is the Chief Information Officer of Logitech. Now, before you go, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit the subscribe button at the top of our website. Next week, we're speaking with the Chief Customer Experience Officer of Comcast. So that will be pretty interesting. Check out CXOTalk.com and have a great week and we'll see you again very soon. Bye-bye.